This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is useful. Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast where we help you learn to invest in 45 minutes or less. We break down the world of investing from beginning to dividend so that you can hopefully make some returns. My name is Bryce and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How's it going, bro? I'm very good, Bryce. Very excited for this episode. There's a lot going on in the world and financial markets at the moment. And I'm excited for this interview because I think we're both going to leave it with a little bit more knowledge and a a little bit more understanding about how to make sense of it all. Absolutely. It is our absolute pleasure to welcome Lynn Alden to the show. Lynn, welcome to Equity Mates. Hey, thanks for having me. So Lynn's background lies in the intersection of engineering and finance. Lynn has a bachelor's degree in electrical engineering and a master's degree in engineering management with a focus on engineering economics and financial modeling. She oversees the finances and day-to-day operations of an engineering facility. Lynn has been performing investment research for over 15 years in various public and private capacities. Her work has been editorially featured or cited on Business Insider, Market Watch, Times Money Magazine, Daily Telegraph, CNBC, and just to name a few. We've recently heard her on a number of our favorite podcasts. She's appeared on Real Vision and we follow her on Twitter as well, where she produces some of her amazing work. So Lynn, it is our absolute pleasure, as I said, to welcome you and we might get stuck into our overrated, underrated game, if that's okay. Sure. Yeah. So, Lynn, we like to throw out a few different indexes, themes, investing ideas, and just get your thoughts on whether they're overrated or underrated to get a sense of where your head's at and how you think as an investor. So we'll start broad. We'll start with one of the major US indexes. So overrated or underrated, the S&P 500? I think it's overrated because it's very expensive. Overrated or underrated, the Fed's response to COVID-19? I think that's simultaneously overrated and underrated. I think some people thought they did a perfect job and other people hated every single thing they did. And I think the the real answer is probably somewhere in the middle. I'm excited to unpack that a little bit more in the interview because you've been tweeting a lot about the Fed and you've been speaking a lot about you know the Fed and the, their response. And yeah, I'm, I'm excited to unpack that insight a little bit more. Before we get there, moving on from the Fed to the US government policy response, overrated or underrated the impact of COVID-19 on the US economy and the government's response? 
that's two separate parts. I guess on the on the economy, initially it was underrated. Now at this point, it's probably overrated. Now it's kind of the long-term aspects, like the debt levels that were already there kind of playing out. So it was kind of like the, the pin that popped it. Government response, a lot of it was state response. So a lot of people think of it as, as the, the federal government doing its own thing, whereas really a lot of the response was state-based. I think, you know, some states did better than others. I think the federal level was not great for a lot of reasons. Overrated or underrated Bitcoin? I think that's underrated. I think that's probably has, you know, some pretty good prospects over the next, uh, you know, call it year and a half. There's a large segment of our listener base that will be loving to hear that. And similarly, a large segment that will be hating to hear that. (laughs) (laughs) Another asset that has done well recently in, in this COVID period is gold. So overrated or underrated gold? Probably overrated in the near term, underrated in the long term. So since COVID hit, we've just seen the FANG stocks absolutely go through the roof. So overrated or underrated the FANG stocks? I think they have to be kind of be taken independently. But as a group, I think they're overrated primarily due to valuation reasons. Uh, and uh, the previous answer about the S&P 500, they're kind of leading the whole index up. Uh, and they're kind of the big chunk of the reason why it's, it's quite expensive from a valuation standpoint. Yeah, the valuations are crazy. We're recording this on the 21st of August, Australian time, 20th of August, US time. And yesterday, Apple became the first $2 trillion company, which is just yeah unbelievable. Did you think we would see that this year, Lynn? No, I wouldn't have guessed it. And if you look at their fundamentals, right? So a lot of you know, a lot of those stocks are benefiting from COVID nineteen as people, you know, kind of have to migrate to uh, technology more and more. But Apple's, you know, current and expected earnings are pretty slow growing. So the whole increase has primarily been from valuation increases. So Lynn, we got two more topics to throw out. In Australia, investors are known to have a love affair with residential property. It's the most invested in asset class. Most, a lot of Australians traditionally tied all their wealth up in that asset class. We're interested in your perspective on the US. So overrated or underrated US residential property? I think it's a very local market. So I think city property, especially in some of the major cities, is probably overrated. I think residential property in in many suburbs, many secondary cities is probably about fairly valued. Lynn, to close it out in something you've written about, overrated or underrated the idea of contrarian investing? I think it's underrated, but often misapplied. Interesting. So before we jump into unpacking a lot of that stuff, we love to get an idea about your background, Lynn. So the story of everyone's first investment is often a good one. So we're wondering if you can share yours and perhaps any of the major lessons that you learned from it. Sure. I'll give you two. One, probably my first investment ever was actually gold and silver coins because I was I was a little kid. I was literally like 10. And I had an uncle that collected like cheap coins, you know, like just like a like a box of like foreign coins from around the world. And the whole box is probably worth like 40 bucks. Like it wasn't really worth anything, but it kind of sparked my interest in, in coin collecting. So for a while, I, I collected, you know, a lot of cheap coins. And then I expanded into silver coins and a couple of small gold coins. And that was back in the, in, I was like 10 years old and that was in the, the late nineties. And, you know, they, uh, that was fortunately like a really cheap period for, for precious metals. So it was really kind of easy to get them. And uh, the main lesson I got from that was not checking price every day because just mm-hmm. like I was, I kind of just grew comfortable with withholding an asset that I liked and I, I, you know, knew it would hold its value of the long term. Yeah. And so, you know, 
I checked the price like once a year. And I think that was kind of a valuable lesson. My first stock investment was Adobe stock, which, you know, is a well-known software company. And I bought it after I had a pretty significant correction when I was a teenager. And I, I sold it for, a, you know, a decent gain about a year later. And uh, I guess my lesson was my reasons for buying it were very simplistic. I was new to investing, right? So I, I knew it went down. I got a little cheaper. I didn't have any sophisticated ways to value it. It was kind of like speculative. It kind of was like, well, you know, Buffett says buy things when they're cheap. And, I, you know, as yeah. a teenager, didn't know what I was doing. But it, it worked out. And then I later, uh, you know, reinvested it a while back after that, too. I actually still hold not the same shares, but I still hold a position. That was my first stock investment. I was going to say, if you'd been holding it during the, the recent bull run, you would be very happy. It's It's been one of the tech stocks that have that have done very well for themselves out of yeah. uh, the, the COVID dip. I have a small position. I, I didn't have it for a while. And then I bought it during the Q4 sell-off in 2018. So we had like a, a correction in some of the tech stocks. And I, I did add a very small Adobe stock position. And it's I still just let it run. It's one of the ones I haven't sold. Do you still have your box of gold and silver coins? I luckily sold that in 2011, but uh, I started reinvesting in 2018. So Lynn, over the years from, uh, you know, when you first bought those gold and silver coins to when you bought Adobe to, to where you are now, have you developed a personal investing philosophy? Yeah, I mean, that was, you know, I, I guess my, my, the start with the gold coins was over 20 years ago and the, the start with Adobe stock was like 15 years ago. Uh, yeah, about 15. So it just was kind of a slow change over time. Now my approach is kind of simultaneously top up and bottom down. So I still do individual stock analysis. I still do precious metal analysis. You know, I've obviously learned a lot along the way. So I have a little bit, you know, deeper ways of, of analyzing them. But then I also incorporated a top-down kind of macroeconomic analysis. So I look at economic indicators and rate of change terms to see kind of what's happening with the economy. And I look for kind of interesting bottlenecks or big monetary shifts or fiscal shifts that can really kind of change the direction of asset classes. So Lynn, we've been loving following you on, on Twitter and, and your blog and sort of following what you're, you're writing about in terms of what's going on over in markets at the moment. So how would you explain what is going on in markets right now to someone who's sort of just come up from spending six months in a submarine and has no idea of what's going on? Sure. I would say that, uh, you know, going back to before they got in the submarine, we, we've been building up in many markets around the world, a debt bubble for a very long period of time. And that's not unusual. That's kind of part of a long-term debt cycle. We've had these in the past many decades ago. You know, We're kind of working through this one ever since around 2008, really. It's kind of like phase two of that debt bubble. And this particular leg of it was, was hit by a pandemic, obviously. And that caused a lot of rapid market dislocations, but those were all exaggerated by the fact that there was so much debt in the system already. And then since then, we've had very massive kind of unprecedented fiscal response, things not seen since roughly World War II in terms of fiscal spending as a percentage of GDP in the United States and many other countries. And, you know, just it's been a very volatile year. And this is also kind of, it's caused a rapid shift towards more and more technology things. So even when the pandemic kind of goes away, I think some of these these shifts are are permanent. Like I think the increased online sales and and other things are kind of, you know, increased teleworking, things like that are probably somewhat here to stay. So Lynn, uh, you mentioned there the the debt bubble and some of the numbers coming out of the US are pretty phenomenal. If we start with the US government response and then we'll move on to the Fed after that. The US government they're putting out multiple trillion dollar stimulus bills. The US debt to GDP ratio is more than 100%. And correct me if I'm wrong, but this is the first time since World War II that, that that's been the case. 
How do you think about where we are with US government and uh, US debt more generally? And what do you think the implications of that are going to be going forward? Yeah, so this is the, you know, like you said, the first time we got that high of a debt level since World War II. We actually went into this crisis with debt to GDP over 100%. So far, it's already over 130% in a very short period of time. So we've added 25% or so just in, in months. Historically, sovereign debt bubbles that are that are denominated in one's own currency tend to be worked through with some degree of currency devaluation. So when companies get overloaded, they default. When emerging markets get overloaded with dollar-denominated debt, which they can't print, they often default. Whereas when countries kind of have too much debt in their own currency, they usually inflate part of it away. And that's how we that's how we saw the World War II debt. Uh, they capped yields below the inflation rate for a decade, and then later they failed to raise interest rates as fast as inflation. So you know there were two decades, the 1940s and the 1970s where treasuries failed to keep up with inflation. So by the time we finished the 1970s decade, we had devalued a lot of that debt as a percentage of GDP. And so I think investors have to kind of be aware of that potential outcome in the years and decades ahead, not just in the US, but many countries, and, but not in every country in the same way. So some countries have more government debt, some countries have more corporate debt, and some countries have more household debt as a percentage of GDP. Lynn, you mentioned the the currency there, and and the U.S. has, I guess, enjoyed its status as the global reserve currency for quite a while now. Do you think that the current policy settings are sort of putting that at risk? And what would the implications be of the U.S. actually losing its status uh, as the reserve currency for for the world? So I think that's been an issue that's building for a while. So back when we implemented the global reserve currency as currency structured, there were economists like Robert Triffin and Keynes that warned against that this, this structure would eventually lead to large trade deficits. And that's exactly what happened. Because basically what the reserve currency does is it creates a lot of external demand for it, which pushes up the valuation. So with most, most countries, when they have, say, a trade deficit, eventually there's some sort of crisis, their currency weakens somewhat, and it makes their import power weaker, and it makes their export competitiveness stronger. So that kind of normalizes over time. Whereas with the U.S., because we have so much extra demand for our currency, our trade deficit never normalizes. So we just have kind of massive, massive deficits over decades. And that really started in the early 1970s with the with the petrodollar system. So the, the version of the, the current system is currently constructed. And also after World War II, the U.S. was nearly 40% of global GDP because it was kind of like you know the last man standing. So as Europe and Japan recovered, and then as emerging markets, especially China, grew in prevalence, the U.S. is now you know about 20% of world GDP, or even less than that, on a purchasing power parity basis. We're no longer the biggest commodity importer. That's China, uh, and so basically. We've had to export, we've had to run consistent trade deficits, and we've basically exported a lot of our industrial base. So we have one of the most service-based economies in the world, and we don't really make a lot of our own things, even more so than some of our other developed peers, like, say, Japan or Germany. So it's not just like all developed countries shifted their manufacturing to emerging markets. They all did so at different degrees. So a lot of uh, you know advanced nations still have you know kind of skilled manufacturing Whereas, you know, the United States kind of exported a greater share of that. And so we had a lot of benefits at the beginning from that system. But over the past few decades, a lot of our working class citizens have really suffered from that because those jobs have been impacted the most. So that's contributed to the fact that America has among the, the highest wealth concentration in the developed world, you know, compared to many of our developed peers. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a very kind of separated society because of that, because 
you know, there are some of us that got rather wealthy from the system, whereas many people, uh, particularly in the lower half of the income spectrum, were kind of more negatively impacted by it, especially in recent decades. Going forward, I think we're probably going to see more multipolar currency system. So there's no country now that has anywhere like the status had that the United States had after World War II, right? There's no country kind of large enough that it's that it's its currency can be the one currency that all commodity pricing in the world happens in, like the dollar, uh, including including the United States anymore. We're just not really big enough. So we're probably you know moving more and more towards kind of a you know several top currencies. So you know, Russia's pricing some of its energy in euros now. China and Russia between themselves are doing more trade uh, outside of their dollar network, right? So they, they've rapidly decreased their dollar usage in the past two years. And I just think we're kind of headed towards a more multipolar currency world. And I think eventually the United States currency is going to weaken, but it's, it's unfortunately kind of a necessary effect to happen if the U.S. wants to kind of rebuild its industrial base. So Lynn, I imagine there are people listening who trying to think through all of this, what this means longer term, and especially a lot of listeners early in their investing journey probably hold a few US stocks or a few US indexes. How do you think this uh, this debt bubble and the devaluing of the, the US dollar to manage some of that debt, how do you think that will all affect the stock market and some of the, the major US companies going forward? I think that in part depends on policy details, like how it's done, what path it takes. I don't think there's one inevitable outcome. But I will say that if you look back over equity markets over the past 50 years, generally an equity market doesn't outperform the rest of the world for two decades in a row. So in the 1970s, you know, the U.S. didn't do very well. In the 1980s, Japan did amazing, but then they had a, they had a bubble. In the 90s, the United States did very well. In the 2000s, it was emerging markets. They did very well. And then in the 2010s, the U.S. market did very well. And what generally happens is that, you know, some sort of monetary fiscal or economic things kind of shift in that country's favor. And it usually starts from low valuations and then equity, equity markets go up to very high valuations. And then from that high point, usually, you know, things change and there's like big monetary policy shifts and, and things like that. And then that highly valued equity market tends to not do very well. So, you know, my base case is I don't, I don't really see the equity market in the U.S. doing very well in the 2020s decade from current high levels. Now, I think some individual stocks could do very well, and I think we could see some of the laggards over the past decade in the United States do very well. And I think we could see, you know, some other global markets do somewhat better than the U.S. I think it's, you know, it's kind of a good idea to stay globally diversified. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
So Lynn, we've covered off a bit about your background and started to get a bit deep in terms of what is going on over in the markets at the moment. And one sort of very interesting move that we're seeing at the moment is the trillions of dollars that the Fed just continuously printing. So I guess from a basics point of view, have the actions of the Fed, do you think changed markets and investors expectations sort of going forward, given now that it's almost a a safety net in some investors eyes? I think to some degree, a lot of it, though, was actually the fiscal spending. So a lot of the tangible effects on the economy uh, in the US were done by the fiscal authorities, Congress and the president. And that's because the Fed can print money and buy assets. So they can buy treasuries, they can buy mortgage-backed securities. They expanded their mandate kind of unofficially and controversially to buy things like corporate bonds. So they've definitely kind of helped the corporate credit market. You know, I think that's that opens up a lot of issues. The major impact to the economy was the United States passed the $2.2 trillion stimulus package and then and then followed up with like another $500 billion. So it's, it's somewhere in the ballpark of like $3 trillion. And that's, you know, it's a very big chunk of GDP. I mean, we have over $20 trillion in GDP. So that, I mean, that's in the ballpark of, of 15% of GDP. And that included $1,200 checks for most people, whether they're employed or unemployed. That included $600 a week USD in extra unemployment benefits on top of state unemployment benefits. So a lot of people got paid more from being unemployed for four months than they made when they were working, uh, if they were on mm. kind of the lower half of the income spectrum. And we also spent half a trillion dollars sending loans out to small businesses, and most of those are going to be forgiven as long as they met certain conditions. So that's mostly free money to, to small businesses. Wow. So that was a, a very large capital injection directly into the economy, which is very different from what we did during the global financial crisis and any previous recession. So that kind of fundamentally boosted the real economy in a certain way. It kind of it made things less devastating, less insolvent than it otherwise would have been. But you know, because it's not like we had a store of money to pay all that. We didn't raise taxes to do that. We just printed money and did that. And the way that works is that the, you know, we had to issue a lot of treasuries to do that. And the Federal Reserve bought a very large percentage of them. Uh, Now, they can't buy directly from the Treasury. The Treasury can sell those securities to large banks, and then those large banks can can turn around and sell them right to the Fed. So basically, a big chunk of what the Federal Reserve did was monetizing those deficits, which is actually the same thing we did in World War II. So it's a kind of a blended fiscal and Fed effort rather than just Mm -hmm. the Fed. And I do think it changes behavior. You know, it creates some of the aspects were kind of necessary, but other aspects kind of create a lot of moral hazard. I do want to pick up on that moral hazard point because obviously the Fed stepped in 2008 during the global financial crisis and didn't manage to unwind their balance sheet before the next financial crisis. They started to unwind and um, we saw a dip in the, at the end of 2018. And then when the pandemic hit in 2020, the balance sheet grew again. And it's now over $7 trillion of assets that the US Federal Reserve holds. Yeah. How do you think about the Fed navigating this path going forward where they're at some point going to have to start unwinding the $7 trillion they have? But at the same time, if another crisis hits in the future, investors and markets will will expect the Fed to step in again. Yeah, the short answer is that they're not going to unwind it, or at least, you know, not most of it. So they tried to unwind a little bit of it after the previous crisis, uh, and it was unsuccessful. And, you know, they, they've unwound a little bit of the recent action, like they unwound the, the repo lending and most of the swap lines, but they're almost certainly not going to be able to unwind the treasury security purchases and probably a big chunk of the mortgage purchases as well. So I don't think it's going to be unwound. Uh, if you look at 
say, Bank of Japan's balance sheet, they went into this crisis at over 100% of balance sheet relative to Japan's GDP, and now that's over 130%. The Fed went into this crisis with maybe you know a balance sheet of like 20% of US GDP, and that's skyrocketed. So you know we're we're at 30 some percent now. I think you know in the years ahead, the Federal Reserve balance sheet is going to keep increasing. I think we're going to have to they're going to keep monetizing deficits or at least a large portion of that deficits. And that's kind of part of my thesis for why uh, going forward, the dollar probably is in a in a somewhat longer term downtrend here because we're probably going to monetize larger deficits than the majority of other countries. So Lynn, just on that, you mentioned before that countries that have their debt denominated in their own cu- currency don't have sovereign debt crises. If we think about some of the more recent sovereign debt crises, it's when the debt has been denominated in a foreign currency. So, you know, like Greece during the JFC. Do you think there is a limit to that? If the US keeps monetizing their debt and, you know, the Fed keeps printing and buying more of it, do you think that could go on forever as long as the currency devalued? Or do you think do you think there's a limit to that, you know, if it gets to 10 trillion or 100 trillion at some point, that thesis doesn't hold? Uh, so there are certain limits. And I didn't say that they don't have sovereign debt crises. It's just that the, the, the type of sovereign debt crisis is very different. And so it tends to be less acute and more kind of subtle or longer term. And the crisis primarily takes the form of treasuries or for other countries, like other sovereign debt, failing to keep up with inflation for a prolonged period of time. So if you look at the U.S. as, as uh, an example, there was about a four-decade period from the late 1930s to the late 1970s, uh, or like mid, mid-30s to mid-70s, where if you bought and held a 10-year treasury to maturity, most of those years in that 40-year period, you, you failed to keep up with inflation. In the early part of that, it was due to uh, the Great Depression and kind of a private debt bubble. And then for the most of it after that, it was due to the federal debt bubble. So that's how it usually takes the form of its pretty significant currency devaluation. Now, this one's trickier because, you know, the world has never been this interconnected, this this financially complex, and we have a private debt bubble and a federal debt bubble at the same time. Whereas uh, back in the back in the previous debt bubble, they were in, they were fortunately ha- able to have them separated. So the private debt bubble peaked in the early 1930s during the Great Depression, and then they pretty much worked through that. You know, it was a very rough time, obviously. And then in the 1940s, when they had the federal debt bubble, they then after the war worked through that. So they kind of had that that benefit of being able to separate them. In this current environment, they're both high together, which increases the risks of a more systemic issue, and that they kind of lose control of it. So, Lynn, I'm interested to know, when you're doing your analysis at the moment, with rates so low, what are you using as your risk-free return? So, I often use 10%. Instead of focusing on a risk-free return, I often focus on a target rate of return. Okay. But another way that I look at uh, looking at kind of um, what rate to use, I also look at the growth of the money supply. So, the long-term uh, growth rate of money supply. Because that is another proxy for inflation, except that most of that money hasn't been getting to consumers over the years. So it's mostly gone into asset prices. So I look at that rate and I also just maintain a high target return rate. So Lynn, can I ask, what is the current rate of growth in the money supply? So it varies. This year, it's well over 20% in the US. So we have, we have 20% broader money supply, or actually about 25% broader money supply than a year ago. Over the past decade, I don't have the numbers in front of me. Uh, I, you know, a few months ago, before this crisis, I would have said it was like you know six percent, but now it's like eight percent, and it's all because in this last year we've had a very big jump. So if you do the ten-year analyzed rate, 
impacted it pretty significantly. Yeah, right. So it's, it's you know high single digits maybe. I imagine uh, if you used the 25% that it is now, there's not a lot of value out there in yeah. the market. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So to going back to the point of the Fed printing, they've been tapering their purchases lately. And if you look at money supply, that spiked up dramatically. But in the past three or four weeks, the U.S. money supply has actually gone down slightly. And the markets continue to go up. And you know the, the Congress is currently gridlocked on an, another round of fiscal spending. So earlier I said that we sent out all these checks to people, we bailed out businesses, we did all, we did all this stuff, but those all ended at the end of July. And so actually in August, we kind of went off a fiscal cliff here. So, you know, all the things that kind of propped up the economy, kind of papered over the issue, they all kind of shut off. And so now we're actually not seeing a lot of money printing. We're not seeing a lot of spending. And it's going to be very interesting because that could be risky for risk assets. And a lot of people that were kind of relying on those are going to be harmed. But we also, at the same time, we're seeing just less currency devaluation happening because they're not really spending and then printing to do that spending. Okay. So Lynn, you mentioned there that uh, you know the, the money supply is flowing at a pretty unprecedented rate. And we're not seeing a lot of inflation in the in the real economy, let's say, but we're seeing a lot of assets hit all-time highs or grow pretty incredibly. You know, we've touched on the US stock market, which has fully recovered from its COVID lows. We're seeing gold hit highs, we're seeing Bitcoin bounce again. All of these asset classes running, is that the effect of this increased money supply? And I guess the the second part of that question is, do you think at some point it will flow through to the real economy? So yes to both questions. I think the significant amount of printing does wind up in financial assets because with bond yields so low and with money supply increasing so quickly, at least until a few weeks ago, investors wanted to get back into risk assets, into scarce assets and things like that. So we've seen seen gold do very well. We've seen silver do very well. We saw a a big shock in disinflation. So we saw inflation expectations crash in March during the the worst part of the sell-off, but they've since rebounded. So you've seen kind of, you know, copper went down and then came back up. Energy had that that crazy period where it definitely hit negative prices in the futures market. And that somewhat bounced back. It's still actually, it's it's been one of the weaker commodities uh, compared to, say, copper. So, you know, I think all this printing has propped up asset prices to a pretty significant degree. Going forward, a big reason why the printing after the previous crisis didn't really get into inflation is because most of that money didn't get into the economy. So the U.S. banks went into that crisis with very little cash, like something like 3% of cash as a percentage of assets. And by the end of that crisis, years later, all the rounds of Federal Reserve QE, banks were brought up to about 15% cash as a percentage of assets because the Federal Reserve bought you know, some of their treasuries, their mortgage-backed securities, and filled them up with cash. Uh, so a lot of that QE just kind of wound up in the banking system and recapitalized the banks. And in addition, homes and stocks collectively, you know, U.S. household wealth decreased by about $11 trillion during that crisis. So it fell from about $71 trillion to about $60 trillion. So the fact that the Federal Reserve printed trillion or so. It was reflationary, but it didn't cause widespread inflation because it was offset by a very significant deflationary shock. And in this crisis, what's different is that they, like I said, they handed out money to people. They handed out money to businesses. A lot of that printing wound up directly in the economy. So we did see, you know, a spike in, in food inflation. You know, we also had some supply chain disruptions for obvious reasons. So I do think going forward in the 2020s, especially when they get, you know, kind of past the, the immediate aftermath of this pandemic, I think as as the economy returns to normal, 
and money supply, you know, the velocity stops decreasing. I do think there are risks of greater inflation now uh, with all this new money in the system. And the U.S. is probably going to keep monetizing deficits for quite a while. So I do think this is an ongoing risk for investors to be aware of. So Lynn, that sort of begs the question then for a lot of our listeners who have never actually experienced anything like this before, given where they're all at in their investing sort of journey. It begs the question as to how to actually manage a portfolio during times of such, I guess, unprecedented behavior from governments and and, uh, also the market. So at a sort of basic level, how should we be thinking about asset allocation at a time like this? Investors all have their own processes, right? So some people are traders, some people are investors, some people, you know, they, they their skill set is in momentum investing, so they 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 follow trends. Other people prefer kind of a more passive approach or a contrarian or value approach. Uh, so you know, the first step is to know kind of what your process is and go from there. I think in general, it's good to kind of look at assets that uh, haven't done well over the past decade overall and just to see which ones, uh, you know, are kind of better positioned. So the U.S., for example, is historically quite expensive, whereas the equity markets of, you know, many other countries are not historically expensive. So I think that they're, you know, I think global equity diversification is going to be a big theme this decade. You know, from, from an American investor standpoint, over the past decade, it's it's pretty much just, uh, if, if you had any sort of uh, international equity exposure, it was pretty much just a drag on a portfolio, right? So it was, it was, all the benefits were to the downside of investing pretty much in anything other than the S&P 500. And that's not historically usual, or at least, like I said, there are decades where that, that happens. And then usually the next decade, that doesn't repeat itself. So I think going forward, I think global diversification is is perhaps going to be more important. And I also think some alternative asset classes. So commodities tend to operate on, say, 10 to 15-year cycles. And the past decade was very poor for commodities, You know, particularly starting in around 2012 or so you know, since then. And so it, it's been a very poor decade for commodities. So I think that there are opportunities in some of the commodity space, especially the high-quality ones. Like I said before, I'm, you know, I'm pretty bullish on Bitcoin over the next year and a half. I think that's an interesting alternative asset class. I think this is going to be a period where having diversification globally and in terms of alternative assets uh, could be pretty uh, important. Uh, and historically, when sovereign debt, like in the U.S. And, and many other countries, is very high, usually bonds don't do very well over the subsequent decades. So they often fail to keep up with inflation. And so depending on an investor's time horizon, they can make sense in a portfolio to some degree. I use, say, you know, cash and, and T-bills as a counter-cyclical you know, investment approach. So when I think equity markets are overbought, I shift a little bit out of equities and into bonds. And then we get, you know, if we get an equity sell-off, I, I put some of those bonds back into the market. So I, I use bonds like a little bit of a shock absorber, but, you know, I'd be cautious about being overweight bonds in this kind of debt-heavy environment that often has some degree of sovereign debt crisis, you know, even if it just takes the form of bonds just failing to keep up with inflation for a long period of time. So, Lynn, I want to pick up on uh, what you said there about Bitcoin. It's probably the most controversial asset class, you know, financial circles at the moment. It's been on a little bit of a run recently. In July, you published an article titled Three Reasons I'm Investing in Bitcoin. So maybe can you step us through those three reasons and then talk more broadly about your thoughts on Bitcoin and that cryptocurrency as an asset class? 
Sure. So I, I originally covered Bitcoin back in 2017 because I got a lot of emails from my readers to cover it. So I covered it in autumn of 2017 after it had that very big run up. And, you know, I, I analyzed it from a couple different perspectives. One of them was as a medium of exchange. The other one was as a store of value. And I took a couple of different approaches and determined that as a medium of exchange, it was probably overvalued. As a store of value, it had a lot of potential. But because of the big run up, it had a lot of uh, positive sentiment. Uh, and was, was probably uh, near-term overpriced. I also was concerned about Bitcoin's network effect because that was kind of a strong alt season. So Bitcoin's share of the market fell to under 40%. And uh, there was a risk. And also, you know, Bitcoin and Bitcoin cash split. And there was this, I had a, I had a solid risk of d uh, dilution. So even if a lot of money flows into the crypto space, but it, it kind of gets distributed among many, many different currencies, it doesn't necessarily uh, concentrate and build a strong network effect. So I, I took no position, and of course, Bitcoin, uh, you know, briefly soared, hit twenty thousand, and then collapsed, uh, and then it's been in this big volatile consolidation period for the past couple of years. And so, when we had the the March sell-off, I saw Bitcoin fall along with many other assets, uh, including precious metals. And in April, uh, in my premium service, uh, we went long Bitcoin, just under seven thousand, and then I published that big piece in July. Bitcoin was a little bit over nine thousand then. And so there a couple different reasons. One is Bitcoin. Most of Bitcoin's historical price bullishness tends to happen in the first half of each halving cycle. So if you look at the launch cycle and then roughly every four years when it undergoes a, a new supply halving, most of the uh, price appreciation for Bitcoin tends to happen in the first two years of each of those cycles, whereas the second two years tend to be periods of, of either crashes, you know, crashes and then consolidations. So it's kind of like a if Bitcoin's going to have a, a run, I mean, this is kind of the time period where it would likely happen. And that's because if demand stays steady and a large percentage of the existing user base are holding their Bitcoin, which they are, we, we have data on that, uh, and new supply is cut in half, basically means that there's you know still a persistent amount of demand chasing uh, you know kind of a, a a smaller new supply of of kind of freely tradable coins. And so that tends to push the price up. And then once it pushes the price up, you get momentum traders coming on board to push the price up even further, and then you get like the kind of the the bad traders, like the the fear of missing out traders, piling in and and causing a top. So that cycle has has happened three times before, you know, the launch cycle and then two halvings. So I, you know, I think there's a good chance that's going to happen again over the next about year and a half to two years. So given where we are in in kind of the Bitcoin halving cycle, given the fact that Bitcoin has kind of regained pretty strong network effect, its place in the in the ecosystem is very strong. Thousands and thousands of altcoins have come along, and some of them have have kind of novel use cases, but none of them have really kind of replaced Bitcoin as kind of digital gold, as a perceived store of value, as kind of a settlement asset. And then lastly, just the macro landscape. So with with all of this, the things I've talked about like in in this kind of long-term debt cycle unfolding it's usually relieved with currency devaluation and that tends to be very bad for some segments of society and good for other segments of society but either way you know if if you're say a big bond investor it's not good for you whereas a small allocation to something like bitcoin as well as allocations to other alternatives like precious metals can defend against that sort of risk so i do think that bitcoin especially in this kind of part of the having cycle deserves a place in many portfolios yeah fascinating it's um certainly an asset class amongst our community that is dividing opinion but it's fascinating to think that you know this halving i guess process well, yeah to see how it sort of plays out and you spoke about gold there lynn does gold have a position in your portfolio at the moment? And 
How are you thinking about that as an asset class over the next couple of years? Yeah, so I, I added gold, silver, and and some of their miners to my portfolio back in uh, October of 2018. We've had a pretty good run there in the precious metals. And I still think they deserve a place in the portfolio. I think some of the easy money has been made over the past two years, but I still think longer term into the 2020s, I still think that gold and silver and some of the mining companies uh, offer some uh, you know, value that is that is separate from some of the major stock indices. And I think that they could continue to do pretty well, both with Bitcoin and gold. One thing I focus on is not being a, a perma bull or a perma bear. So you know, in 2017, when I analyzed Bitcoin, I, I took no position and kind of was, was, I wrote kind of neutral to bearishly on it. I was very cautious. Whereas April of this year and since then, I've been pretty firmly bullish on it. And so analysis can be can be pretty useless if it's coming from someone that always has the same view. So if someone, say, runs a gold newsletter and no matter what the condition is, they're bullish gold, right? It's not necessarily helpful analysis. Whereas someone else who's like, say, deep in the Bitcoin community or deep in the crypto community, if there's always bullish on their chosen coin, then their analysis sometimes is, is not particularly helpful because it, it kind of has a directional bias. Whereas for me, I'm lucky that I have a big range of assets that I that I choose from rather than being like a kind of in any specific niche. So at the current time, you know, the past two years, I like precious metals a lot more than Bitcoin. Uh, going forward, I think Bitcoin is, is probably the strongest asset class from an asymmetrical risk reward ratio over the next year and a half. But of course, that you have to kind of manage position sizes to benefit from that kind of risk reward ratio. Because uh, if you say put all your portfolio on it, you're no longer benefiting from any sort of asymmetric risk reward. You're kind of, it's, it's like a gambling bet at that point. So as a small position size, I think it's, it's it's helpful. And precious metals, you know, like I said, I think some of the easy money's done, but I still think that gold and silver have, have pretty far to run in the 2020s decade. So Lynn, here at Equitymates, we love bold predictions. Every year, uh, Bryce and I make uh, a number of bold predictions to start the year. I'm going to toot my own horn here and say that I uh, I predicted that we would have a $2 trillion company by the end of the year, and Apple has proven me right. Nice. <laughs> when we get experts on the show, we, we love to ask them the question. So I guess I'll ask you, if you had to make a bold prediction for the end of 2020 or beyond into the, into the next decade, would you have any uh, bold predictions that you'd be willing to share with us today? Because there's only three and a half months left for 2020, I'll, I'll go into 2021 and I'll say that I think by the end of 2021, Bitcoin will probably be firmly into new all-time highs. I like that. That's a, nice. a great bold prediction. We, we'll write that down and we'll come back to it at the end of 2021. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see how wrong I am. But yeah, that's that's my that's my. Do you want to put a price to it? Uh, so I've been I've been careful about doing price targets because I think there's a very big range that it that it could be. My thesis is that the general shape of of this halving cycle will probably look like other halving cycles, but uh, I don't have a specific price target. I think well over thirty thousand is possible, and I think that there are high numbers that it could possibly touch that can be kind of extraordinary but I don't know how well it would hold those those levels. But so I think the safer prediction is just well into to all-time highs. Wow, nice. The other thing that we like doing, Lynn, is um, as part of the community, we build, we're building out sort of a bit of a hypothetical portfolio of stocks that are interesting and that we come across through discussions with the likes of yourself. So we were hoping you were able to add to our expert watch list with a suggestion of perhaps a stock or even asset class Bitcoin, if, if that's what you wanted to do, that we can just add to that watch list and have it as part of our discussion in the community going forward. 
So a somewhat speculative stock that I've been interested in lately uh, is Tencent. I think that could be a trillion dollar company in the years ahead. I think, you know, it can still take a while. Now, it's always challenging because China is not known for accurate financial reporting. And so, you know, you have to kind of take reports with a grain of salt and you have to kind of manage position sizes around risk, right? So I, I don't like to make an investment in a stock that if it if the thesis does not play out, materially harms the portfolio in, in any way, right? So I don't put, say, 10% of a portfolio into a stock or something like that. But within the scheme of a diversified portfolio, I've been pretty interested in 10 cent stock for a multi-year from current levels. It's had kind of a consolidation for a while. You know, we've had this, you've had the whole US-China trade issues, mm. but it has it has strong growth prospects. And, you know, the stock hasn't really gone anywhere in about three years. It's just a, you know, kind of a choppy, slightly upward trend. So I think, you know, the next call it five years, I think, I think Tencent could do very well as long as, you know, there's not some giant macro event or fraud or something like that that kind of derails the whole thesis. Mm. That's great. We'll we'll add that one to our watch list. It's definitely a fascinating company, and uh, we'll mm. be interested to see how it goes. You've given us a lot of insight and a, a lot of things to think about. So we want to say a massive thank you for coming on the show. We do like to end with a final three questions that we ask every guest. But before we do, if people want to read more of your work or follow you online, are there particular places where they can go to find out more about you? So I'm at lindalden.com. I have a free newsletter uh, and then I also have a, a research service and I'm on Twitter at lindaldencontact. And I, I got to say personally, I love your Twitter. You've yeah. got a lot of really interesting stuff on there. So uh, for any equity mates listening that have a Twitter account, Lynn is definitely one that you should follow. Thanks. Bren told me last night he's liquidating his whole equities portfolio and <laughs> going long, long Bitcoin. So uh... <laughs> yeah, I do not recommend that. <laughs> so Lynn, as I said, we uh, we do like to end with a uh, uh, final three questions. So we'll get stuck into them. The first one is: Do you have any books that you consider must read? And these can be investing or otherwise. So I think probably the most relevant for this conversation is Big Debt Crises by Ray Dalio. He's the founder of Bridgewater, the world's largest hedge fund. And you know he's, he's written books about how these long-term debt cycles play out. So what, what makes the difference between an inflationary or deflationary debt crisis? How emerging market debt crises differ from developed market debt crises most often? And some of the nuances of previous debt crises, you know, like the, the Weimar uh, Republic hyperinflation, or World War II, you know, kind of Great Depression, U.S. debt bubble, things like that. So I think for anyone that wants to kind of a deep dive there, I think he has a, a free PDF version, or at least used to. So you can look into that. If not, you know, it's probably on Amazon. Nice one. The second question is, what is your go-to source for investing or financial information? Yes, yeah, so I have I have no single source. I think I think Twitter is the best for news. Unfortunately, you know, the news sources are slow. News comes out on on financial Twitter before it comes out on any of the major news networks. From a kind of quantitative perspective, I often use Y charts for a lot of my fundamental analysis, and I also use a tool called Fast Graphs for a lot of my fundamental analysis on stocks. So people can check those out. Maybe nice one. You say unfortunately about Twitter. I I think. I think, fortunately, I think it's a it's become a great resource that that didn't exist exist for uh, investors, you know, in generations before us. 
Yeah, I agree. I guess the reason I put it, unfortunately, is just because you have to kind of know how to use it, right? Because there's there's so much yeah. kind of junk on there. Yeah, if you yeah, have yeah. good filtering processes to actually follow the right accounts, you can get a lot of professional level information. I mean, there are portfolio, there are, you know, there are hedge fund managers, there are people that focus on reporting the news, and there are all sorts of resources on there that can be extremely valuable. The fact that a lot of mainstream news just tends to have a very narrow focus and doesn't cover things very quickly. So it, it's kind of the fact that so much news comes out on Twitter so far before or, you know any other news source uh, is kind of interesting. So I do think it's a very valuable tool if you know how to use it. Other than the Equity Mates account on Twitter, would you recommend following any other accounts for our audience? I th- one of the questions that always pops up is, who should we be following on Twitter? So I'd be interested, is there an account that you find particularly interesting? I would say not off the top of my head, but uh, if anyone goes to my Twitter, I only follow like 70 accounts. Oh, and nice. so uh, it's kind of a high signal to noise ratio. Yeah. And so the, the couple I, ca- I follow for news, uh, there's usually a specific reason, kind of e- each one covers a different area. And it's not even all people I agree with, right? So it's, it's important to follow people that you disagree with, but that are still valuable, right? So they're still intellectually honest. They they report facts. You might see things a different way. So it's not like I, like my follow list is not a collection of people I agree with. It's kind of a collection of useful information. And, you know, it's, it's like, it's probably like 67 financial accounts and like three like cat accounts, like cute animals. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Lynn, the last question that we always like to end the interview with is uh, if you think back to your younger self, you know, when you first bought that box of gold and silver coins, or when you first made uh, your first stock investment in Adobe, what advice would you have for your younger self? Just keep learning because, you know, a lot of those initial investments were imperfect. You know, I didn't fully know what I was doing when I bought Adobe, but the curiousness to keep learning and to keep researching. And whenever you have a question, go look it up and, and kind of look at it from multiple angles and just kind of keep iterating and building that knowledge over years and decades. Love that, Lynn. It is all about the the lifelong journey. So great way to finish the interview. And we absolutely thank you for your time today uh, coming on Equity Mates and sharing your thoughts on what's going on in markets and asset classes around the world. So very much appreciate it. We look forward to seeing how that bold prediction Bitcoin pans out over the next 18 months or so. We do have it on record. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, so now, watch out. <laughs> yeah, now we're, now we're guaranteed to have a Bitcoin crash and a 10 cent crash. And, you know, so yeah. whatever I said, just... just you know, do your, do your own due diligence. <laughs> Look, uh, yeah, so we very much appreciate you coming on. Thanks for your time. Yep, thank you. Thanks, Lynn. Thanks for listening to Equity Mates Investing Podcast, a production of Equity Mates Media. Please remember that everything you hear in Equity Mates Investing Podcast is general advice only. The content has been prepared without knowing your personal objectives, specific financial circumstances, or goals. The hosts of Equity Mates Investing Podcast may maintain positions in the companies discussed. Before considering any investment, Please read the product disclosure statement and consider speaking to a licensed financial professional.